What's keeping you busy? Fundraising. A lot fundraising. of fundraising at the moment. Oh, wow. That's something we've heard a lot from a lot of entrepreneurs. It's like when the fundraising comes around, you basically got to allocate all your attention to that externally and then kind of diverts away from the internal processes and operations. Are you finding the same thing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a full-time job in and of itself. So then you're basically kind of stuck with two full-time jobs that you somehow need to manage. Mm-hmm. And Carl, what, what round are you racing? Is a seed, Series A, a bridging round between the two? I'm seed at the moment. Seed, okay. Nice. Well, mate, it's great to have you on the podcast. This is usually how we do things, just get right into the conversation. It's not no formalities, nothing like that. And so well, thanks for having me. What uh, tell us a little bit about your business. So what are you building? Sure. Yeah, so Revelancer is a freelancing platform. Um, essentially I started freelancing ten years ago. Um found a lot of issues with the industry and I'm trying to solve some of those with Revelancer now. Um, and essentially what Revelance is, it's a freelancing platform where freelancers can exchange services and skills and get inspired by by one another. Yeah, okay. Can you elaborate on that then? Um, because obviously we have so many freelance platforms out there right now. You have a huge glut of people wanting to, you know, quit their nine to five, do a bit of work on the side, follow their passions and so forth. And I feel like freelancing, you know, offering your services up is quite a good stepping stone. Um, to where you maybe want to be in the future. So can you explain kind of what you're doing to capture that market of um, all these people suddenly becoming freelancers? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, we have a service exchange system where, you know, you can, let's say, build a website for someone and in exchange, they can do your accounts for you. Um, so And, and the, a platform like that doesn't exist at the moment, especially not one where you can barter with, with um, other freelancers. So it's a great way to kind of build your portfolio at the beginning and then exchange that for help with building your brand. And then as you scale, you can increase your capacity uh, and variety of services that you offer to clients by outsourcing parts of that to other freelancers on the platform. That's really interesting, actually. So, you know, is a big part of your customer base kind of cash strapped? Um, people are more interested in kind of, you know, say if you're building a business or you need some design work done is like a kind of quid pro quo deal where I will do some work for you and I'll get some value in return. Exactly. Yeah. So you, you pay with your, your time and your expertise essentially, rather than, than with money. Um, I mean, freelancers, when they were surveyed late last year, recommended starting freelancing with 10,700 USD on average, but that same group of freelancers on average started with less than half of that amount. So it's very clear that people feel, you know, that they need more money or ultimately that they need to get more for less. And how are you making money on top of that? Uh, there's a five pound per month membership fee per user. And then we also do um, larger B2B, uh, you know, kind of partnerships with co-working spaces who will then buy, you know, say 100, 200, 300 seats for their, um, for their entire community. So how does that work on the B2B side then? Um, well, I mean, a co-working space can uh, basically buy seats for freelancers so that they can um, include it as a perk of membership. And then they pay us, you know, the five pounds per month per seat instead of the um, individuals using it directly. So then the freelancers then effectively work for that business that's bought them the seats? No, so members of that co-working space, which are very frequently freelancers. Right, okay. That's interesting. And then so um, tell us about your fundraiser and you're kind of in the midst of it right now. 
I want to know personally what kind of why do you need the money um, from your perspective? Is that to grow a sales team? Is that to get more devs on board? Is that simply for scaling operations? You know, what's the uh, what's the money going to go towards? I mean, the very top line answer uh, is is because we don't want to be profitable on a small scale. We want to be profitable on a on a very large scale, or ultimately um, just grow to a very large scale and and then you know possibly IPO, possibly exit through a competitive acquisition. Um, so our our investors, you know, past and present, um, are not interested in us becoming profitable. They they are interested in us reinvesting everything that we make into scaling as fast as possible so that they can make a sizable return down the road. And what does scaling look like to you? Is that you kind of thinking geographical expansion? Are we thinking, you know, working your way up the chain, working with like bigger and bigger corporate clients? Or what, what's your first kind of uh, beachhead you're going to take? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we're already an, an international platform. Um, and I mean, ultimately, there are 1.56 billion freelancers in the world today, a number that's growing. That's currently a third of the global workforce. And we currently have just under 20,000 on the platform. So, you know, we we want to um, move a bit closer to that, you know, to that limit. Nice, man. That's really interesting. And then kind of talk about what was the origin of your idea? Why did you start to uh, decide to settle on uh, Revelance and kind of the the years leading up to it maybe yeah sure so like i mentioned about 10 years ago i went into freelancing myself to try and make money online as a teenager i quickly uh, realized that the platforms i was using at the time just weren't really serving freelancers properly um so they were taking enormous commission fees and they still do today they stop you from communicating with your clients outside of the platform which you know again they they still do today as well um, and it even uh, even back when I was 15, I started a freelancing platform. Um, so with about 200 pounds, um, grew it without being able to spend anything on marketing because I blew my entire budget on just getting the, the website online. Um, and I ended up selling that platform after about five months or so. So I, I have quite a bit of exposure in this space. I felt for a while that, you know, there really needs to be some, some innovation, some improvements. And then especially when we were, when the pandemic came and we were in lockdown and video, you know, video calling became such an essential part of remote work. Um, you know, I just knew that we needed to do a lot better and that there was a lot of room for improvement in this very fast growing space. And that's how I came up with the idea. Interesting. So it's something you've had a lot of experience with since you were since you were a lot younger. Yeah. And absolutely. What, so what sort of freelancing were you doing back then? Yourself? Um yeah. So in, in I started with graphic design and then quite quickly went into web web design and developments as well. So do you have any specific verticals that you focus on with Revolancer or freelancers? Yeah, so it's it's kind of B2B services that can be done remotely. So the main four are web development, graphic design, media, and marketing. But, you know, it spans beyond that as well. And typically, are these kind of like one-off projects? Or do you kind of dabble in, you know, contracting and getting people on for projects that may take, you know, three to six months plus? Um, and so it's typically on the shorter side, but, you know, we, we see a, a big mixture of different things, including much longer, sort of longer-term projects. And the, the why personally was it graphic design for you? Is that kind of like a... A childhood passion is that you know art and design is that something you did as a teenager or did you kind of cover it from quite a business approach of being like you know this is a high skill um a high demand skill uh and i should train myself train myself up on it and kind of put it out into the world 
Um, so basically, I, I think the way it started is I was trying to like make a YouTube channel when I was 12 or so. Um, I then got obsessed with trying to have like a nice channel banner. So I pirated a copy of Photoshop and kind of taught myself how to use that and gradually got better and better with it. And then when I went into freelancing, that's a skill that I already learned. So I, I didn't really go into learn. I mean, I sort of went into learning that skill with the goal of, you know, like growing something, you know, in this case, a YouTube channel, but not so much because I thought that I would charge money for that service. It's just because I couldn't afford um, to hire a, you know, a, a graphic designer at that point to make some channel art for me. It's often how it happens, right? It's just kind of... Um convenience almost it's like you know yeah. the, the you had the baseline and you just needed to kind of stack skills until you got to where you needed to be but i want to ask you as well and we can touch on this a bit later as well you have a background in ai as i understand do you think that a lot of these kind of freelance roles will be ai'd away so to speak so i mean you already have so many tools that create images for you, create designs for you based on, you know, input descriptions. Um, I've seen things like, you know, building whole PowerPoint decks from scratch in a matter in a matter of minutes, just from a few simple prompts. Um, do you think there will be a market for things along the lines of kind of web development and graphic design in particular in the years to come, given the kind of pace of development of AI? Um, I think in the short term, possibly sort of, much lower end services so maybe where if you go into five and you pay someone five dollars to build you a logo and they use a template like you know they, in that case um probably yes but i think more largely it's going to impact the freelancers in a positive way because i think freelancers will use these tools to um, be able to do more in in less time and the reason why i don't think that in the short term at least you know other as a caveat but in the short term with what we have right now you know with chat chat gbt obviously and other um kind of image generation kind of stuff um the reason why i don't think that's going to be a cause much of an issue in the short term is just the the quality control aspect so chat gbt can generate great content but um ultimately it it can't think it's not smart it's just a fancy version of predictive text it's basically you know like on your phone um where it's a, like tries to guess which word you're going to put next um it's it's that but it's trained on five million web pages so it has a lot more trade training data so that's why when it writes you know it can accurately guess what word will come next that will make sense um but ultimately, it makes mistakes. So, for example, uh, ChatGPT attempted the, uh, I think it was a dermatology exam. So for, for doctors who want to specialize. And um, part of that exam is kind of giving a list of symptoms and trying to diagnose. And then there were three uh, kind of questions. The first one, it diagnosed correctly. The second one, it diagnosed incorrectly. The third one, it made up a, a new disease with symptoms to diagnose the, um, the patient. So... You know, it, it just goes to, to to demonstrate if you use ChatGPT to generate content um, about a, a like an area that you don't know a lot about, it will answer with such confidence that you will probably, you know, it, you'll assume, oh, this is all correct. But in reality, it's not fact checking. It's not like thinking the same way a human would. It's just based on all the web pages it's read, trying to guess which word is going to come next. And that can result in it making things up or like completely just false information. So I think, and this is already where I've seen it work really well with freelancers. Like, let's say you're a freelancer who's a copywriter. You can use it to generate a draft, but then you go through and make the final edit. So now you can save a lot of time. 
um, do, doing the work, you know, and and possibly also then charge the client less um, and a few other things. So I think it will have an impact, but more in that way in the short term um, than, you know, uh, kind of replacing freelancers, especially more skilled freelancers that charge higher rates. But in the long term, it's very difficult to say. But I think ultimately, the one thing that is kind of essential and I don't see how people are going to solve this is for it to be able to fact check itself. But that's such a difficult question because I'll, I mean, it, it, it even starts like before you even think about the technology, like who decides what is fact and what is not fact, you know, it, it, it's, it's just such a complicated issue. So exactly. I think, yes, like, if, you're, all, if you're basing yeah. it as well off, you know, all of the web pages on the internet, as you said, there's going to be so much wrong information in there. So oh, how, how, yeah. how do we, at the very first level, be able to tell what's right and what's wrong? And then there's the assumption that a human is going to have to step in and basically designate, all right, these are facts and this is fiction. And then you have embedded in there the bias of the human, right? So I really appreciate your point. And I think you're absolutely right that these things will only really be a superpower in the, f- the kind of foreseeable future purely because you're always going to have that kind of human intervention. If you're going to have human intervention at the start, you're going to need it at the end as well. And there's going to have to be human discretion applied to the output as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's the best way. So, so to use it as a tool to enhance your work rather than to replace you, I think that's what it's going to be in the short term. And tell us about your your project. I'm just I was just on your website earlier, and you said you kind of you were using AI to track and predict sentiment in reader responses to news articles. Um, so this was like kind of you know was it a final project you did at university, something along those lines? Uh, explain to us you yes. know what kind of why you decided to do that, um, and what did it look like? What did the what did the product look like? Yeah, sure. Um, so yes, it was my university uh, final year major project. Um, it it started with trying to detect uh, fake news using AI, but at that time, and this was in early, no, le- late twenty twenty, um, the kind of first research papers around this topic were at that point only a couple of months old, so it was such a new field, and I realized quite quickly there probably isn't so much that I can do in this area specifically. Also because of these issues, like how can you realistically fact check? There's there are so many problems there. So then I thought what might be quite interesting is trying to build a system that can predict how people will respond, like audiences will respond to news articles. So um, basically what I did is I I built a scraper that would collect all of the new articles published by the nine major UK um, news publications, as well as all the reader responses to those articles on Twitter. So I got um, like an academic um, API access to Twitter, which meant I could like um, scrape something like a million tweets a month or something like that, um, which is a lot more than you can normally do on on the free plan. And then basically I collected all that data. I then did sentiment analysis on the reader responses. So basically trying to figure out like is, you know, like it's a percentage breakdown of positive, negative and neutral sentiment. So, you know, if I'm saying, you know, oh, I'm going to kill you, that's probably like high negative sentiment or if i'm saying like oh i really love what you're doing then like probably right. high are, these, are, these like the, are these like the comments left on any piece of content you were finding is that yeah. how you were yeah okay yeah I, exactly so i, I matched just, up the just, articles on yeah just yeah. sorry just before you continue i think it's actually an interesting point as well because i was reading a similar study on this recently which is you always get the extremes or the there's some kind of study into showing that the 95th percentile of people will only ever comment 
So you don't see the kind of responses of you know how the mass of people feel. That's why on social media you get, in particular, such a divide between okay, black and white, left wing, right wing, right and wrong. You know all of these kind of very pressing social and political topics that a lot of people seem to be very divided on, and that's because the loudest voices often are the extreme ends of the scale. Uh, and I think that's from a personal point of view. Whenever I go on, you know, Twitter, I only ever really see those strong opinions, and that does not reflect the opinion of maybe even kind of ninety percent of the people that are consuming whatever news article or piece of content it may be. Um, so yeah, but as as you continue to explain, I, I was just interested to hear if you had kind of considered that as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's the same reason why if you look at any like businesses' online reviews, it'll be like either five star or one star. You know. Um, but yeah, I mean, and that's that's why when I collected these reader responses, I took the average of the sentiment score. So, you know, like if it sort of angered more people or like made more people happy or like if most people were responding to it in quite a neutral way, average that out. Um, so, you know, the overall response is quite good. And then at that point, I um, I had a neural network that trained on the articles with the uh, kind of average reader response sentiment. And then uh, for new, basically for new articles, I could then predict how the audiences would respond. So it was very interesting, actually, because you could um, see, you could de de demonstrate like the audience of The Guardian and the audience of The Express would probably react very differently about uh, a, the, you know, the topic of Brexit, for example. And I could like I could model that with the actual, you know, with, with the classifier built and with it continually scraping more and more data. You know, it became smarter and, you know, kind of, quote unquote, smarter and smarter, more accurate over time. Did you find that these kind of results were fairly dynamic as well? Did you find that people's sentiments changed over time? Because obviously, you know, um, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think that a Guardian reader in 2016 would not probably have the same views as someone in 2021 or 22 or even that same person, you know, their ideals, their opinion of the world given their own personal experiences, times, current events, times, you know, various things happening that have happened in the last few years, their opinions were slowly morph over time. Is that something you noticed or did any kind of analysis on? Yeah, I mean, it's all, almost uh, certainly the case. Um, the articles and responses that I scraped, I start, started scraping, I think, in January of that year, and then I shut it down um, in probably about May or so. And within that time frame, it collected more than half a million articles between these nine major UK news pu publications. So it was all within a very kind of tight time frame of only like four or five months. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, if, if I were to continue with this project, uh, then that's certainly something, you know, I would need to keep in mind. Oh, is this something that's like fairly ongoing that you're looking to pick up again or? Um, I might pick it up again at, at some point, but for the time being, I'm, you know, very busy with my, my current, like main project. You could turn this into like some kind of product for Twitter, right? You know, if you have all the, all these voices on Twitter that basically, as far as I'm concerned, exist to, to stir shit, right? And to get people's heart rates kind of going and like get people offended or excited about something, um, some kind of, you know, tool that would allow them to craft the most impactful storylines, I think maybe is not a net benefit to humanity, but it could be a quite useful commercial proposition. You know, I did, I did actually very briefly after I graduated, I, I worked with a couple of people and we adapted what I had built into um, basically for brands to predict 
how their social media posts would do. So like, yeah. would it get a lot, lot of responses? Um, would it do well? Like, would the responses be, you know, what kind of sentiments it would be? And it, and it worked pretty well for that as well. Um, but ultimately, that's, you know, a project that I, I didn't continue working on for a, for a couple of different reasons, mainly because um, I was wanted to focus full time on on Revlon. So, but it's absolutely something you know which I am planning to pick up again at some point in the future. So, Carl, Carl, it sounds like you got quite a suite of technology skills. So, in terms of getting the Revlancer platform up, is it something that you built yourself, the product, or did you hire a team to build it, or how did you go about creating it? Yeah, so I mean, the the very very first kind of MVP I built myself, um, but then quite quickly I brought Sky on board, who's my co-founder, um, and who has been you know building the platform ever since. Uh, and Sky is a much better developer than than I am, much better software engineer than I am. And was there a smooth transition between what you had built and then him taking over, or was he kind of like, hey, we need to we need to reassess and rebuild here? How'd that go? Um, it was kind of built on on top of what I built, but you know, like I think the the stuff that I built probably makes up like well below one percent of the current, mm-hmm. you know, what, the current code base. So yeah, I mean, it's mainly um, what's been happening since. And, and those coding skills, did you acquire them in university, or something that you're interested in growing up? Computer science. I mean, yeah, I was very interested growing up, but then also my I did my degree in AI and robotics, so um, there was a lot of yeah, you know, that involved a lot of coding as well. Nice, nice. And how did you find the programs at university for improving as a, as a software developer? Because I know a few people that have mixed opinions about that. I I sort of stand on the side of it's useful, but I probably learned about eighty to ninety percent of my own software development skills by doing projects. Yeah, I mean, I. I, I have a very mixed opinion on on this particular topic. I think with most university courses, I uh, I, I think that it's in a lot of cases like better not to go to university. Um, but with this one and a few others, of course, like maybe medicine or law, obviously. But with computer science, I I'm kind of on the on the fence because ultimately, I think you can teach yourself a lot more, a lot faster just by yourself. But the problem is that. People who are fully self-taught coders can oftentimes pick up very bad habits and do things in a very kind of inefficient way. And you learn a lot of that more theoretical side that yeah. kind of need as a base at university. But that doesn't mean you can't learn it online. It just means like, you know, if you kind of Google, how do I learn coding it's or whatever. It's not given to you in a structured yeah. kind of way, right? That's the key. Because yeah. I think in university, they might be teaching you about you know, cues and all this kind of stuff, message cues, and you're kind of thinking, what the hell am I learning this? It seems so abstract. Like I'm never going to be coding in assembly. But then it's when you actually become an intermediate to advanced level developer and you're reading documentation and it says, oh yeah, this when you call this method, this what this is what it does. You're like, oh yeah, I remember Mr. and Mrs. such and such in university talking about that. That makes sense to me now. I guess I didn't waste three years of my life. <laughs> I think it's, sometimes it's with education as well. It's a bit of accountability, right? I mean, we can all say we can all sit here and say, like, I'll I'll spend the whole weekend, you know, learning the basics of this new skill, and then I'm going to keep doing it for the next months and years. But I think education does give you that platform of, you know, firstly, is this really what I want to spend my time doing? Because you know, we've all been there. Um, I certainly have where you just kind of try a project, drop it, try something, you drop it, and you try and kind of iterate and find mm-hmm. what you like and what you want to spend your time doing. 
I think university goes a hell of a long way into kind of cementing, I, I do or don't like this field. I want to steer as clear away from it as possible, or I want to kind of lean into it more. Um, but there's also that accountability of simply, you know, having the structure of, you know, exams and all of the like and having different modules and getting, as Sarai said, getting it in quite a structured way um, that keeps you accountable and avoids you kind of, as you said, Carl, like avoiding those blind spots you may have otherwise and the bad habits that you may pick up if you just were kind of left to your own devices. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would say at the end of the day, it's always the individual who decides whether they're going to learn it or not, right? The medium can change. It can be university or it can be self-taught, but it's you as an individual that decides, yes, I'm going to dedicate the time and energy to learning this. There's just slightly more efficient ways of learning something. And um, yeah, I think I think you make a good point about, I, w- I wouldn't say just computer science, I'd say a lot of technical subjects. I think it's important to have. I think STEM. Of, uh, I think like yeah, STEM. any any STEM subject. I'm sure, Carl, when you said some of them are worthy, you're talking more about like on the humanities end of the spectrum. Um, I think I think in that case, I, I was thinking about this the other day. It's funny because I was thinking, why would you go to university if you're going to end up in just you know like an office job or whatever it may be, or like an apprenticeship? Um, well, that has absolutely no relation to kind of what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day basis, right? That has no relation to your degree. Um, and I think it's simply because, you know, if you have, you went to university in any capacity, any kind of employer can see, all right, um, you, you kind of know how to show up on time, put work in when required. Um, you're going to have like this base level of reliability. So it's almost like I need to go to just get this stamp um, so I can get employed rather than having actual real world uh, benefit in the same way kind of learning a more STEM subject would. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very expensive stamp in that case. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of the just the formal education system as as a whole, you know, across most subjects. Um, but I think that's also partially because of how I learn. Um, I can teach myself stuff much more effectively than someone else teaching me. And I don't know. That's probably not how most people are. Uh, but I think there are a fair number of people who, who are like that, at least, um, who, you know, where school and university probably just isn't really made for them very much. Um so yeah, yeah I, do you I think don't AI know. will change that. Do you think AI will change that? Because obviously, like the big one of the huge benefits that a lot of people are talking about is in the next five to ten years, it has the potential to kind of uproot the education system, uproot how people learn, and instead of having you know classes of twenty people, uh, twenty kids will sit in the same room, learn the same thing at the same pace, and no child left behind, and all of this stuff, and kind of limits the you know the top and the brightest students. Instead, you have some kind of AI that will tailor you know based on development, level of learning, prior learnings, you know, language, uh, medium in which they learn best, whether that be kind of text, photos, video, whatever it may be. Do you see that as something that has the potential to uh, disrupt the education system? I th- yeah, I think it's de- there's definitely potential there. But, but I, I think the issue is that the formal education system hasn't changed for such a long time. I mean, they they hardly even acknowledge calculators exist, let alone the internet, let alone, you know, now things like ChatGPT. So I think, I hope that at some point, you know, that there will be major changes like you suggested, but I think that it will take a long time. I think it'll, it'll like, it'll be a lot, it, it, it'll be a lot of time from when the technology is there until when it actually gets adopted, I think, by the education system. 
Yeah, le- legislation and regulations uh, adapt a lot. Le- le- adopt, a lot, adapt a lot slower than the change in environment that we live in. But Carl, if you were to take a step back then and, you know, if you were talking to somebody, let's say 13, 14 years of age, who's, you know, still yet to take steps into the real world and grown adult and choose a career path, what would you say to them in this, you know, change in environment, the fact that you work on a platform for freelancers, that education is not all what it seems to be in your, in your perspective. So what, what would your, what would your, uh, your advice be to someone in that situation? I mean, absolutely to just understand that at that point in your life, you'd have very few obligations, really. It might not feel like that, but, um, you know, you have a roof over your head, you have food provided for you. You, Yeah, okay, maybe you need to go to school, but outside of that, you don't really have many obligations. Um, so then now, like, you know, that, it's absolutely the time to just really explore the stuff you're interested in and focus on your, on your passion. You know, like you can do so much stuff nowadays and even 10 years ago when, when I was that kind of age, um, you know, I taught myself graphic design. I taught myself basic web development. I went, um, onto freelancing platforms. I made some money. I built my own websites, sold my own websites. Um, so these are all things you, you can do. So what, whatever it is that, you know, you want to go into, it's absolutely worth exploring it at any point in life. But if you can start, then you can get a, a big head start first of all, but also there's not really any, any risk, you know, you're not like, if it doesn't work out, it's not like, you know, you're going to be homeless the next month or, or whatever. Like you're not looking after other people financially. Yeah. It's just, you can just experiment freely, basically. Take risks while you can. That's a that's a very efficient and productive way of approaching the world, especially age 13, 14. You know, your fu- your future children are going to be some super geniuses, Carl. So the, I'm, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised. No I'm surprised there is no allowance for drinking and smoking as a 13 year old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, but no, that's that's very true. Absolutely, that's why I say I said to my younger brother a couple of years ago when he was 16, 17. Like now is the opportunity to invest in yourself when you have no obligations and really get a head start in life and really have, you know, a kind of edge to whatever you're older, because th- those things, they they, ma- they matter so much. Like they seem so trivial when you initially do them, because yeah. when you start, you're, you're not necessarily exactly advanced or particularly good at anything when you first start. But even if you cultivate 12 to 18, 24 months of, of hard work and effort, you know, the, the dividends for that can pay off for you. 10, 20 folds, 5, 10, 20 years down the line. Absolutely. I mean, like, I, I guess I'm a somewhat good case st- study of this because, like, you know, I very much uh, practiced what I preached here. Like, within within three months of graduating, like, with my bachelor's degree, I closed a venture-backed um, funding round for my startup, a, a VC-backed pre-seed round. Um, I... I heard that only about like 0.02% of startups managed to close the VC funding in their first round. Um, so, you know, on the, on the outside, that sounds like, you know, I don't know, somehow I, I really knew what I was doing or I got very lucky or just, you know, right place at the right time. I don't know. But ultimately, you know, for the, for eight years before that point, I had, you know, built so many different websites, tried building so many different businesses, failed over and over again with so many things, um, but just never gave up, kept trying. And then ultimately put me in a position where, you know, I I could go basically full time into running my own startup directly out of uni and 
and get paid for it because for eight years, you know, pretty much the whole time I didn't really make any money from what I did. And when I did, it was certainly not enough to like for an adult to, to live from. So yeah, I mean, um, it's really good to get started at that kind of age because you don't need to make money. You can just learn, you can just fail and learn a lot from those failures. And then ultimately when the time comes, you can, um, you know, pull something off and have a head start. Exactly. I think one of the adages that goes with that is either you win or you learn. So even if you're failing, you're learning in the process. So you're not really failing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Fail forward. But that's, that's fantastic. I appreciate that transparency as well, talking about, you know, just how long it took you to kind of start earning money and get off the ground. And there's so many people, 99% of people would have given up in those eight years, right? They would have given up after a month, frankly, the vast majority of them always, it kind of seems to me that you really did know deep down that this is a route you want to take. Cause yes, you can, I very much understand the concept of, you know, get beat down go get knocked down seven times, get up eight and just keep going and going and going. But there's something in, especially in the entrepreneurial world, which is like, you need to know when to quit. So when you're kind of following these pursuits, how did you know that your vision at the end of it was something that's worth spending years and years potentially making no money off um, because you know that the price at the end of the, at the end of the day is, is great enough. It's, um, it's something like I, I've tried thinking about this. Uh, it, it's difficult to understand exactly why I think, um, I mean, when I was 13, I remember I decided, I just got the idea in my head that I needed to work for myself and that there wasn't any, any other way. Um, I don't know like why exactly that popped into my head, but it, it stuck around. And that's just, that tends to be kind of how I've always been with, with everything. I'll like get an idea into my head and then be just absolutely relentless to like making it come true. Um, I don't know why I'm like that, but I think, you know, in this case, it, it really, really benefited me. I think it's just because I, I, I knew deep down for a very long time that, um, like I, needed to work for myself. And if I tried working for someone else, it probably wouldn't end up working very well. And then I think, you know, like a few, a few years after I got started, um, I did some work experience while I was in sixth form and it got like reinforced definitely that I didn't, you know, that working for someone else just wasn't really, really for me. I think, yeah, that's a commentary between all of us here and particularly everyone who will listen to this, um, that, it's, it's that control and that freedom that you crave. Ultimately, I think that's the most important thing that we should try and achieve in life. You know, the freedom to do and make the decisions that we want to make, um, as opposed to, you know, doing things purely for mon money or for recognition and stuff like that. Um, some yeah. people may disagree, but that's my personal opinion. Uh, but then if you, if you just go a bit, a little less high level than that, kind of, why was it in particular? So you talked about graphic design or the website development you did and you've now gone on to make your freelancing platform it all it's all kind of operating in the same kind of niche how did you know that that niche and that industry was where you wanted to spend and devote your time or maybe you did jump around a lot of industries and you have and if if you have done then maybe you can fill in the blanks there and about why you tried uh different things i mean i did absolutely jump around trying a lot lot of different things but it was mainly within this kind of freelancing space, um, you know, like kind of creative services. Um, I guess because it's what I started with. So it's what I understand the best and, and also, you know, like really understood the, the problems of best. 
And then I was just sticking to my strengths because like being a, you know, like a couple of years ago, just having graduated from university, like I'm completely fresh into the professional world. So if I'm going to pull off a, a business, you know, really make something work, it needs to be something that I understand a lot and already have a lot of experience in. And this is an area that, you know, I understood very well for the past 10 years. So what do you do outside of this, man? Do you do, uh, do you have any hobbies or passions or is it all, is it still all within the same realm of like creative and creative services? Do you spend your time writing? Do you spend your time like doing art or something like that? I can see you as maybe someone, someone who kind of dabbles in that in their spare time. Shed some light onto that. So um, we can, kind of, we can understand what kind of guy you are outside of your, outside of your business. Sure. So I, I actually, I, I don't do any kind of art. I don't do any kind of writing whatsoever. Um, I mean, like for a very long time, I would ignore school and focus on, um, you know, and then university and, and just focus on trying to make money online and build different businesses. So the point where when I graduated and went into this full time, I would work, um, you know, 10, 10 hours a day or something and feel really guilty because I felt like I was procrastinating, even though I wasn't, you know, but, but like for such a long time, the procrastinating and the hobby part was like working really hard on the business. Um, so that's something I actually kind of struggled with for a long time. Cause I, I just felt so guilty because it felt like I was just procrastinating the whole time. Very, very weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, Regardless, I, 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 I mean, out, outside of work, it's something that I, I do struggle with a little bit because I am very driven um, to like to work on what I do. I actually burn myself out quite badly within a few months of starting. Um, so I learned a lot from from that experience. So I kind of, you know, I have to force myself to, you know, quit while I'm ahead sometimes just, you know, in terms of finishing the day or the week or, or whatnot. Um, but yeah, I mean, outside of that, I really enjoy, uh, going for walks I recently got into chess, um, which is something, you know, game I could play for a while. Never thought I was very good at it. Uh, but then now that I like did some more of the theory around it, um, I seem to be somewhat okay and I enjoy it. So, um, uh, continuing cool, with that, where do you, where do you, where do you play? Where do you play chess online? Yeah, I, I, I got the, I went onto chess.com and kind of started on, on there a little bit. Nice. What? What? Um, I'm, I'm a big. I'm a big chess fan. James knows this, so he he was. Okay. <laughs> I saw him look look at me as you mentioned the, the chess. But um, what uh, what what time games do you play? Oh, I mean, like n nothing, nothing too serious yet. I mean, like really, just getting started with the, uh, just the kind of initial lessons and and stuff on on chess.com and like because nice. like for a long time, you know, I knew what the different pieces do, what they're called, that kind of thing. Um, but not, you know, like the importance of controlling the center of the board, like pr protecting your um, pieces, sort of high how to develop them. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, just that that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, getting more and more into that. I have a very good friend from university who was the um, president of the chess society. And, you know, he's obviously very into chess, but every time I play against him, I... I just got absolutely <laughs> demolished. <laughs> um, said we need to have a live, uh, a live session between you and Surat. Just a live competition, live stream. Yeah, <laughs> so I think I, I definitely. Together. <laughs> I, I think I, I would definitely lose in that case. But may, maybe I can get my friend to to play against you. That might be more of a a competition. 
No, I don't know, man. He talks um, a big game, but he's he's not all about that. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, there. I mean, a, a, a few different things, but ultimately, I spend a lot of time thinking, um, you know, about work because for a long time that was my hobby, and now that's what I do, kind of full time. I, I I get it as well. It's like I, I think it's a great sign because it shows that you are really invested in what you're doing, and it's it's not a a chore or a means to make money for you is something that you're not only investing your time, but your emotional energy into as well. Um, we spoken to founders recently who had for one reason or another had to kind of shut down their business, right? It might've been failed or the, you know, like even like this one is like taking a down round or something. Like how do you explain to, you know, all of your tens or hundreds of employees, how you have less money to work with, or that the vision that they bought into is now kind of, you know, in the bin. Um, and the reason why is because a lot, a lot of them take them personally because it is just such an emotional investment and you become almost married to it, to your startup and your idea and the thing that you build becomes like your baby, like a family member or something. So when you do lose it, it does feel like kind of losing a friend or a family member along those lines. It's kind of the anecdotally what I've heard. Um, so I think it is a great sign, but as you said, the, there needs to be some balance in the world. Um, have you thought about traveling kind of, it, I, I've I personally been burned out so many times before, whether that be kind of working my own thing or like working for someone else. Um, have you thought about traveling to kind of mix up your environment anymore? Do you have any kind of nice insights and tactics into how you kind of break the burnout? Or is it simply this, like shut your laptop for a weekend and completely put your mind out of it and try and uh, get back to it on Monday morning? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, I, I was quite fortunate to like travel quite a lot with my family growing up. Um so I've I've been to quite a few places, uh, and it's always a great escape. And I, I think, like especially last year um, in the summer, I, w- I went to South Korea, and I remember thinking because it was for like three weeks. And I remember thinking, like, oh, I don't really need this time off work, you know, um, you know, kind of kind of like almost feeling guilty about it, uh, just thinking, oh, I don't really like need this. But then by the end of the holiday, when I came back, I was like, wow, I really needed that. <laughs> um, so I mean, like, ultimately, I don't like if you're already burnt out, I don't think there's much you can do other than just like try and step away and try to do other things. But I think the the real important thing is like, not getting to that point. And I think the the best way not to get to that point, or at least what's worked for me, is understanding that like growing or just being becoming successful growing a successful business this kind of stuff it's a marathon not a sprint and what that means is like if you run a marathon throughout pretty much the whole marathon you are running slower than you are able to probably a fair amount slower than you are able to but that's so that you can actually make it the whole way through if you like tried sprinting at the beginning for you under the first few kilometers you just tie yourself out ridiculously and probably couldn't complete the rest of the race. So that's how I think about it. So like, and the other thing is just like quit while you're ahead. Let's say you, I don't know, you spend like the first seven, six, seven hours of the day, just like win off to win, like meetings go great. You, know, you, just, you just feel great. And then you're like, oh, awesome. You know, I'm just going to work like another four hours or whatever. Just don't quit while you're ahead. You know, like you've, you know, like celebrate the wins for the day, do something nice in the evening, um, that kind of thing. So I've been like constantly just reminding myself of those things. And, and it's meant that I haven't really burnt out since, since this happened like a year and a half ago. But yeah, be- before that I would work like 10 plus hours, six days a week and 
I burn myself out. Yeah, man, I th- I really fantastic advice actually. I think um, it's so relevant because of you know all of this hustle culture and all of the kind of related you know people inspiring and encouraging you to work as much as possible. And, you know, if you don't work hard enough, you know, that guy next to you is going to overtake you and this and that. And a lot of kind of like sports analogies and uh, when it comes to like training and stuff like that, you know, this predatory sense of, you know, I have to give it my all every time I step in there. There's a time and a place for that. I think the wiser and more experienced uh, entrepreneur or business leader or even employee, whoever you may be, um, knows when to kind of turn on the gas in the same way that maybe like a long distance runner would you compared it to a marathon um they know that they're likely not going to run it all at one pace you know like when do i run slower when do i pick it up you know when do i need to conserve my energy um and kind of think about it tactically like that and i think to add to your point the disadvantage of to kind of you know agree with you is that when you push hard you often push hard in the wrong direction um i think mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the time a lot of us kind of work for work's sake or we work to look busy or to feel like we're doing something and you know maybe you spend one month with your head down you didn't look up to see you know where you are what's changed what's new like who could have helped you with this where could you've gone for advice um i think we've all been there where we've got our heads down or whether it be like a coding project or some piece of uh, anywhere from like you know it could be like a you know a bit of writing or even the most mundane thing um and kind of shut ourselves off from the outside world and not think about the bigger picture and not think about you know am i actually going in the right direction or am i just working for work's sake um so to always have perspective on where you are um and where you're going as well is a is a highly underappreciated skill so it's fantastic advice man i was going to ask you questions along those lines as well but you pretty much answered it for me um but we, we, we do have to wrap up now carl but i really appreciate your time man sorry sorry i had to drop off he had uh, some connectivity electricity issues um if you want to end on anything like uh, you that you want to plug you want to plug for yourself or talk about anything that's coming up that's exciting for the listeners yeah just shout shout now yeah absolutely i mean uh, if you're a freelancer and you're interested in revelon so then you can find it on google um also i'm happy to answer any questions or help out where i can if you add me on linkedin um yeah so i uh, hope hope that's useful and thanks very much for having me really enjoyed the chat um and and i think that you know um i i think he left after we started talking about chess and he might have gotten a bit intimidated by um <laughs> you know by, by my kind of beginner skills but oh yeah. man he, yeah yeah he he talks he talks the big game but you know i've 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 witnessed him lose a number of times and yeah i, I want to see him lose again so we need to have you on <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll try it next time yeah oh man it's been a fantastic conversation thanks so much for your time Cole. it's been a pleasure yeah thank you so much take, take care, care of yourself bye-bye